reminded of speaking to a university uh, chaplain, for better lack of words. He heads up Chi Alpha in the University of Oklahoma. Actually, OU. We're sitting together and we're drinking coffee. And one day he says to me, he said, Pat, you know, we've prepared a generation for high school. But we prepare them to, to, to live it in high school, but we prepare them to fail in college because we don't take them deep. We send them to youth services and God pours out his spirit. and It's awesome. I love it. But they go to school and they can talk about what God did and they can talk about uh, great gatherings and fun events. But we don't talk to them about what they believe. So today I want to introduce to you something called apologetics. I want to take you on a journey. Christians aren't supposed to be stupid. We don't check our brains at the door. We're actually supposed to know what we believe. We're actually supposed to. Paul said it. He said, Paul said in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 4, he said, I don't come with you with wise and persuasive words, but with the power and demonstration of the spirit. Well, what's so contrary to what he said right there is how he was so brilliant in approaching apologetics. And, and I'm going to explain to you what that is in just a moment. But he was trying to say to them, it's not just about. Now, the problem is if we have if we all we ever do is just go deep thinking and never let the spirit move. How many of you know you need a combination but you also need to know what you believe. We put our Bibles, we carry our Bibles in the church and we leave it on the, on the, on the back seat of our car in the back window. We pick it back up next Sunday morning and we walk in and, we, and, and, and God's saying, how, it, how is it that, that, that you don't even know what you believe? You know, I saw a commentator say this one day. He said, Muslims train their children to take over a world. We, take, we train our children to leave this world. Talking about Christians. Maybe we don't really want to argue our faith or believe our faith because maybe, just maybe, we might look stupid. Or maybe it's because the last generation was so concentrated on the rapture of the church that they didn't prepare this generation for Satan's theology, which is secular humanism and nihilism and existentialism. And Darwinianism and all the isms has caused all the schasms. Maybe we don't know what it means, humanistic mentality, but I'm going to tell you things. There's, going on, there's things going on in our nation right now, right now, dealing with government that so lines up with humanistic mentality, it would blow your mind. And so as I move into this today, I'm going to take it a little bit deeper today here at the Summit Church because I'm reminded on... The corner, the east side of the Washington Monument up at the top. Maybe you've never heard this, but actually on the Washington Monument, there's the words Las Deo, which means all powerful and mighty God of heaven, basically. Maybe maybe you don't understand that on the east side where they laid the cornerstone on July 4th, 1846, they laid the cornerstone to build the Washington Monument and just down there at the corner underneath, the very first cornerstone laid... In, inside of that brick is a Bible that was given by the Bible Society, the very foundation of the, monu- the Washington Monument. Are you still with me so far? I can tell you that the first church, or the, excuse me, the first building in America built at Jamestown was a church where the Puritans bowed. you got to finish the second part. You just haven't heard it yet. Open your Bibles very quickly, if you would, to Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans chapter 12. I teach kids to do that all over America, and I hate it when it comes back to me, okay? It's what my mom used to say for years. You reap what you sow, son. Everything you've just done, you know, the jail thing, you're going to reap what you sow. (laughs) and uh, The rolling of the mare's yard, all that, you're going to reap what you sow. And um, God is doing huge things. For over 20 years, I've spent thousands of days ministering to teenagers, and to college students. Standing on college campuses, whether it's in California or Cleveland, Tennessee. Speaking on college campuses over the years uh, in Philadelphia. I can just start naming it to, to Minneapolis, to Dallas, Texas. But one of the things that I have not done very well is 
Besides, and I've had very great emotional services, powerful services, and I believe in those moments. I believe the altar is being filled with weeping and with adults and teenagers. However, I have come to the conclusion that while those services are life-changing and you must have an encounter with the supernatural power and love of Jesus, we must also prepare our students for life. Follow me for just a moment. In fact, maybe it's because we're afraid to go deep. Maybe it's because the last generation was so wrapped up in getting us ready for the rapture they didn't prepare us for life. I heard a a commentator on TV say one day, he said, you know, the Muslims or the Muslims train their children to take over the world. We train our children to leave the world. Are you still with me? One of our children in our church is in junior high, was sitting in class at a local school here two weeks ago when school started back and the teacher was trying to get to know to them and she began to talk to them about how we all related in one way, one way shape, or form. And, and, and she began to share with him and, and, and how we're all actually related to the earth and I hope I'm getting it right, but I don't want to draw attention to him or the school or the teacher. And she said, how, raise your hand, tell me how are we all related, how do we all... Uh, and she said, and I'll tell you the first way, and it's, she said, it's because we all are evolved from the same primate. We all came through evolution. And this child that's in our church, parents are leaders, went home and told his mom and dad, what do I do? The problem is, and I get it, reminded of sitting with a director of college ministries in Oklahoma one day, and he said to me at a youth, count, youth conference, he said, Pat, and this guy's a, a, what's called Chi Alpha director, and he said, Pat, he said, we have trained our kids for high school, but we teach them to fail in college. Are you still with me? Maybe it's because we're afraid to go deep. Maybe it's because, because we, 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 we don't understand it. But let me tell you about Satan's theology. And Satan's theology is secular humanism and it's postmodernism and nihilism and Hinduism and all the isms and all the schisms. And they all come forward, Darwinism, existentialism. We're going to go into all that over the next few weeks because we actually have to understand what we believe. And believe it or not, I'm not going to point to it. You're going to see some of the stuff I'm talking about and you're going to go, wow. Whether it's the stuff that's going on in government right now, whether it's stuff going on with health care. Oh, am I going to make somebody mad? Please. If you stone me, uh, use soft stones. Because, see, I'm going to get very real with you. I'm reminded of the first building in Jamestown. The very first building ever built in America was a church. The Puritans' first act was to kneel down to God and to pray for the dedication of their new America to Him. I'm reminded that in the very cornerstone of the Washington Monument, on the east side, the Bible Society, on July 4th, I believe it was 1834, I believe. I'll, I'll give you the exact date in just a moment. 1846 is what it was. When they laid the cornerstone for the Washington Monument, there, the very cornerstone, that's the first stone to be laid on the east side, inside of that piece of stone is a Bible donated by the National Bible Society. I can tell you that on the east side of the Washington Monument, you may not know this, but there are the Latin words, Las Deo, or Laos Deo. Which means, praise be to the God of heaven. So we're going to go deep. I went and saw a movie recently. It's called Taken. And I loved it because the hero's old. And he kicks tail. And his daughter was getting ready to go on a trip. He fought her over it. And when she landed in Europe, she was taken captive and to be sold as a sex slave. And he went and got her back. And I love it. So I'm calling this message or this series starting today, Taken, the Battle for a Generation. Here's what you must understand as I move into this word this morning. As I go just a little bit deeper, I want you to look very closely. Because over the next few weeks, we're going to tackle evolution and humanism, or humanism and sexuality and relativity of truth and science and religion and Hollywood's take on religion and uh, suffering and global one world comprehension is it okay if we go deep are you ready for this and environmentalist and mysticism and atheism and universalism and abortion and nationalism and all those different things but i'm reminded christians have to be very careful because if we're not we're going to end up like nero who fiddled while rome burned america is a lot like rome we're overtaxed oversexed, and sports is only crazed and the writer of ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun so we better understand something it does not talk about the great eagle 
very much in the end times. Now, I'm going to get very real with you and very deep with you. And I invited some of these brilliant minds that are sitting up here who every single day have to come in conflict with the belief system. And we're going to go into that. And we're going to talk deep. But look at Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read it to you in the NIV version first today. And then I'm going to read it to you out of the Message Bible because it makes a lot more sense. It says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The most brilliant person sitting in this room is you. Your brain, you want to die having used it. God formulated it. He put it together so that you are smart. There's no way that this brain evolved from a plant. You understand? Now, from when I turn to the side, I do look like an ape a little bit. But anyway, that's not important. Long jaw. But what you got to realize, and I want to thank my parents for that. The whole gene thing. Here we go. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. But look at the message Bible. It's really cool right here. Don't become so well-adjusted. That's what it says to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. That's what it says. You'll be changed from the inside out. I love what it says right there. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture. Now, that goes against humanism, by the way. Because much of the moral belief system is designed and secular humanism is designed by uh, how culture views it. Culture dictates what I do. How many of you understand that we actually don't live in a democracy? <laughs> we live in a republic. You, you, you know that, right? Because a democracy could stand up and dictate that everyone in this world kill their children. And if there's a vote taken and everybody decided to vote for it, we'd be a messed up nation. But a republic governs the democracy. You still with me, right? Just making sure you understand that. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Everybody say quickly. Respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always. Now, this is Bible. This is the Message Bible, and, and which is written in more relative terms for today. The Message Bible lays it out and says it more clearly what was mentioned or what was said by the Apostle Paul right here in Romans 12. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. I love that. God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. One of Nate's coaches Chad Phillips texted me this morning, and Chad and I are, are, are good friends. And, and Chad is um, the D-line coach uh, for, for Hewitt Trustful, and, and I love him. I love his passion. I love his fire. But he texted me something so cool today. He said, Pastor, I'm praying for your church services today. And he said something so cool that I had to write it down and read it to you. He said, someday these times will be referred to as once upon a time. That's what he said. And I'm like, Chad, I can't believe you said that. It's too good. I text him and I go, wow, what, where did you come up with that? Someday, the times we're living in, they will say once upon a time, there were some Christians that would stand their ground. Once upon a time, there was parents that would actually tell their children what to do and discipline them. Once upon a time, kids did not rule the house like Lord of the Flies. See, over the next few minutes, I want to take you through something called apologetics Versus philosophy. Jesus versus the world. In fact, they should have already handed it out to you, I believe, if they had, that um, we're going to do a case number each week. And so that you'll have this so that you can give it to your children and maybe you can even give them a test when they get home. Let me take you on a journey. But I first have to apologize to a generation for 20 years for not going deeper. I have to apologize. I have had the opportunity to minister to about 2 million teenagers or a million to 2 million teenagers and I have not got, taken them this deep. But maybe I had to wake up. Maybe it's the fact that I'm getting letters every week from colleges for my own son who is in his senior year at high school and I've got to send him off to different schools. And it doesn't matter what their website says about the school. It doesn't matter if they say they're religiously affiliated or anything else. I, I understand that there is a system in place, an education system in place in America that sharpens the minds but also dulls the minds. So maybe it's me going, i got to get Nate ready. I'll never forget when it was his 13th year, and we do this thing called uh, Holy Spirit uh, Bar Mitzvah is what I call it. And, um, and uh, I, I went through one year of nearly every morning of school sitting Nate down and teaching him how to be a man. 
And at the end of that, on his 13th birthday, we did a knighting ceremony and we laid a sword on him and I gave him a Bible that I had preached from for years. And then uh, great leaders from across America created a book of wisdom that sent to him. And his mom presented to them that. And, I, and it amazes me how a lot of times, because according to the Bible, at 13 years old, you become a man. At that time, we, send a, we tend to stop, don't we? And so it, got, it hit me this week. I'm praying and I'm going, I've got to get him ready for university. Do you understand that America was once a Christian nation? Write that down. Psalms 33 verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for the inheritance. Patrick Henry said this, It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religiousness, religionist, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Patrick Henry said that. John Jay, the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. One of the three men most responsible for the Constitution. He said, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of a Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. First Supreme Court justice said that. Our first president, George Washington, from his farewell address to the nation, he said this. Do not let anyone claim the tribute of American patriotism if they ever attempt to remove religion from politics. (laughs) That'll smack you in the forehead. I could have had to be eight. Watch. Warren G. Harding made this statement. It is my conviction that the fundamental trouble with the people of the United States is they have gotten too far away from Almighty God. Who are we? Christians are, are, are supposed to be the leaders, but according to the media uh, we're, and, and pundits, we're, we're, we're fascist or we're disingenuous, unthinking, weak-minded, use God as a crutch. People, we're zombies, we're zealots. Christians are dumb. Christians are racist. Christians are close-minded. Uh, Christians use God to answer, has an answer to avoid actually thinking. That's what they say about us. Doesn't it tick you off what I just said? Folks, we have not represented very properly. Throwing a scripture and tucking tail and running and acting like a martyr for God because somebody's smarter than you is not the way to do it. Have I made you mad early? I'm not trying to. But I will tell you, these guys sitting right up here, the heroes that are sitting here, can tell you that every day they get challenged on their belief system. Second service. There'll be 20 to 25 Alabama students that'll be sitting here that will tell you every day they get challenged on their belief system. In fact, Tyler Geist told me last night that last week they do this thing where people can sign up for sororities and fraternities and all this other kind of stuff. And he said they were signing up for Unashamed, which is that great move of God. And by the way, they were so packed out last Thursday night, over a thousand university students praising God. Uh, I'm just telling you, it's unbelievable. But he said, Pastor, we were talking about last night when I was driving to go speak in Mississippi. He said, Pastor, from every direction we were getting hit by people that were there to argue with us about what we believed. And he said, and some of our little girls in our our group just simply did not, and guys did not know how to respond. You know what my goal is? I want to make you intellectually grounded in Christ uncompromising Christians. That's our statement. Intellectually grounded in Christ uncompromising Christians. We actually know what we believe. I'm not afraid for you to be smarter than me. Just don't email me about it. I don't mind if you know more than I know. That's your anointing. But what you have to understand is, for years we've been afraid of that. In fact, other religious groups, other churches won't let you go deep. They don't even let you read the Bible for yourself. And so here we are, we have all this freedom, and we don't even read the Bibles for ourselves. Christianity, write this down, is getting in the way. What do you mean? Do you know that at Harvard University, one of the founding fathers of Harvard University, and here's Harvard right here, made a statement. And his statement was basically this. That he, Go ahead, if you got that statement from Harvard, bring that up for me. And it, it was basically Harvard was created so that Christians might not be dumb. He said, so that the church will be intellectually founded. What do you mean? Christianity is getting in the way. Tired of us being dumb. I want to teach you over the next few weeks. We're going to go so deep. Do you know that most of the founding 
Ivy League institutions in America, Princeton was a pastor's college. Most of the very schools that were created were either created for journalism or for religion. For Christianity, rather. There's a big difference in religion and Christianity. Religion is man's search for God. I've already found him. His name is Christ. Give God a praise offering right now. But there's competing worldviews. What are competing worldviews? It's a collection of convictions and opinions. And they're breaking out all over the place, everywhere. If we only have eyes to see and ears to hear and a mind can conceive and be able to think true thoughts, they are propagated. Worldviews are propagated on newsstands and magazines and in Congress and the halls of Congress in the United Nations and in Duke and Princeton and Yale and Harvard and USC and Jeff State. See, what you got to understand is there's a huge difference between biblical Christianity and worldviews of those of secular humanist or Marxist or cosmic humanist or postmodernism and Islamic worldviews. What do you mean? As a Christian, our worldviews should be based on the Bible and constructed around the person of Jesus Christ. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus think? How would Jesus do it? That we believe in creationism. We believe in these things. But the problem is we've not been taught to argue our point. I want you... I love what uh, Thomas Jefferson said. He said, be bold about being bold. I want you to be able to say, I believe this for this reason. I'm going to teach you the process of how you argue apologetics with philosophy. When you're standing with someone that, that believes certain things, instead of just going, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there and running off. No, that's not going to work because, first of all, they don't believe this is true. You've lost the argument. Are you with me? How many of you wish you'd have heard this before you went to college? When you were out, quote, finding yourself. And the world was finding you. What does the Bible say in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take uh, captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience and uh, once your obedience is complete. What do you mean? As Christians, our basic assumptions about life are formed by, by our central beliefs in the person and message of Jesus Christ. That's what we stand for. And those who do not hold biblical-based beliefs will usually come to very different conclusions about life and morals and what makes life worthwhile. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. And C.S. Lewis, by the way, is probably the greatest apologist that has ever lived. One of, if not. He said, we're now getting to the point at which different beliefs about the universe lead to different behavior. Religion involves a series of statements about facts, which must, which must be either true or false. No in-between, no relative to what you think truth is. It's either true or false. If they are true, one set of conclusions will follow about the right selling of the human fleet. If they are false, quite another set. What do you mean? What was he saying right there? He's saying we must get to a place where we can say that is true or that is false. There's no gray areas. Right? You're still with me, right? See, what you have to understand is, where's the church? Where's our voice? We've to be blamed for being asleep as the Christians are led the arena to die. Agnosticism in the last two years has grown 744%. That is the belief that the evidence for existence of God is lacking or inconclusive. That's what they mean. Christianity has decreased by 4%. Why? Hollywood and secularists work hand in hand to push an agenda called uh, hedonism. What is hedonism? Basically, Pleasure is the ultimate gain. It's the ultimate goal. It's the highest form of individualism and, and being a society that we should only seek after pleasure. That's called pornography. You're still with me, right? Secular humanism is exploding. What does the word secular humanism mean? What does that term mean? Secular humanism is a humanistic philosophy that upholds reason ethics and justice and specifically rejects the supernatural and the spiritual as warrants of moral reflection and decision making. In other words, everything we've done so far this morning is stupid. God plays no role in our life. There's no such thing as miracles. Don't set up a, a, a manger scene. If you do, I'm sorry, we think that's dumb. Stupid. Moral relativism versus moral absolutes. My morals are determined on how I feel. 
rather than what God told me to be. In Toronto, Canada, a few years ago, I was riding down the 401 or the QEW. I can't remember which one it was in Toronto. Either way, you're going to get slowed down very quickly on both of those. And I'm riding down the freeway in Toronto, Canada. I'm sitting with a pastor and he's talking about meeting in a school. And I said, man, why don't you just build? I was dumb. I didn't know. And he said, well, you haven't heard? In Canada, they recently made a decree that the day of the church is over. That now it is time for other religions that we've had all these years to build our churches. So now the people that get first building permits and first right to buy land is other religions than Christianity. Well, that's horrible. That's Canada. We are always 10 years behind Canada. Just as if, as if two years ago when they made homo, uh, uh, homosexual marriage okay in Canada, it's headed to us. See, what you have to understand, there's a day coming where they're going to say, Christians, you had your time. And while we've been having our neat little church services, the other world views, the other world convictions, the other world concepts have been eating us for lunch. We send our kids in the classrooms armed with stories of awesome God moments and great youth gatherings, but we don't teach them a term that I must emphasize to you today called apologetics. Are you still with me? Are you bored? And the Holy Spirit can move in a classroom and an office just like he can move in a church. Matthew 5.14, he says, be the light of the world. You're the light. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. It's the very scripture for the summit church that we founded this place on. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that we may see our, your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's why we do the things we do serving like crazy. That they may see our good deeds and turn around and go, that's got to be God. Ravi Zechariah, the greatest apologist of our day today. Brilliant, brilliant Indian man, unbelievable. He said, we must go beyond opinion. It's time to stand up and be counted. So number three, write this down. It's going to go deep. Here we go. We're going to go quick. You got to listen closely. Don't apologize about apologetics. Well, I don't want to offend them. We're supposed to be meek little Christians. No, I don't think that's what the Bible said. He said something about be a dove. But be a snake. But the Bible says, be a dove. <laughs> See, I'm just quoting Bible to you. What does apologetics mean? It means the defense of faith. It's the branch of theology concerned with defending Christianity as a reasonable and practical faith. The last two weeks I've taught you about Jesus. The last two weeks, if you haven't got those messages, you've got to get them. Now, I've talked to you about how Jesus came to being, the process. Then I talked to you last Sunday about, please forgive me. How the process of forgiveness didn't just happen. But so for too long, we've been afraid of standing up for what we believe. We feel dumb. We say God is our defense. That's the greatest statement we love to say. Well, God's my defense. You know, the Bible says, with all that's within you, live at peace with all men. It doesn't say I'm going to live at peace with all men. He's our defense. If Rick and Bubba can stand up to an evolutionist, where's the church? And I love those guys. But where's the church at right now? Why don't we stand up? He's our defense, yes, but we must also understand that God gave you a brain, a mouth, and, and ears, and, and body, and use them for him. Why? Get in there and defend Jesus. One of our students said to me this last week, the more of his presence you jealously guard, the more he's willing to give you. Write this down. We have five responsibilities as believers. You still with me? What are they? We are to wrestle with every question honestly, to internalize every single answer, to release revelation and love, to approach all with knowledge, truth, and God's word. That's who we are as Christians. And then number five is the big one that we don't do very often, to live out the answers before a watching world. If this thing is true and you're going to quote it, then actually live it because they're watching you. You are assigned to the world. Paul said you are an epistle. That word means letter. You are a letter to the world. You have been written to take to a dying world. The Bible says that when I walk in a room, those that are perishing for lack of knowledge of God should smell 
death. The Bible says we are the smell of death to those who do not believe. See, what you've got to understand is I should change. Let me give you an example. Atheism. Their argument, their number one argument is the presence of evil equates to the extinction of God. They say if there's evil out there, there can be no God. That is their biggest argument. In fact, I will tell you this. Now listen closely. Their argument consists of the absence of any moral order seen in the universe actually disapproves the existence of God. If there's, if there's, if there's stuff going on in the universe, if there's pain out there, there cannot be a God. I can prove it to you that they believe this. Most actually believe in evolution, if they believe at all, and most believe that religion is for the weak-minded, and most have aggravated or, or excuse me, gravitated towards secular humanism. And they will fight. And there's actually a preacher out there who claims to be a reverend that is preaching about how to remove God from every part of how we live. God bless him. They look at something like Katrina, and it is said that Katrina produced a lot of atheists. They look at something like Katrina and say, they say, how can a loving God come down and allow this to happen? Folks, I have one word for you, but it's the term we always use and they ignore it. But it's called we live in a fallen creation. Here's their argument. There's evil in the world. If there were a God, he would have done something about it. Nothing has been done about it. Therefore, there is no God. I do not see any God. Therefore, God does not exist. I walked into my sixth grade science class at Bragg Junior High in Gardendale. And I walked in and I had a teacher and she was a very precious lady, an African-American lady. And she really was very kind, the most loved teacher in the school. But one day I'm sitting there, Mr. Preacher's kid who didn't know jack about the Bible. And all of a sudden she looked at me and she said, Pat, I got to ask you a question. Something had just come out in the news about a child being raped and murdered. She said to this to me, she said, Pat, if there was a God, he would never allow a woman to be raped and a child to be murdered. We say, well, mankind fell. God lost dominion. They say, how does a big God lose dominion? We say, Adam and Eve. They say those symbolic parents of creation. Because to them, this is just a book of stories. There's no difference in this. In Confucian sayings and Buddhist sayings and all the other Krishna sayings, that's what they say this is. This is just a book of poetry and stories. Jonah and the well did not exist. They tell the whole story. They ignore everything. Jesus, if he did exist, he was just a good guy that was building his own kingdom. You still with me? Then they say, I suppose God built the world in six days and the earth is only 6,000 years old. We say, yeah, now you're getting it. Way to go. You grabbed hold of it. Then they say, what about carbon dating? We say, carbon who? Yeah, carbon dating. They say it's proven. Every living creature has carbon in it called C14 and when they die over a period of time they begin to lose that carbon out of their body but if you measure the carbon dating inside of a body you can tell how old something is is and they say that's how we can tell that the world is millions upon millions or billions upon millions or whatever and 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 uh, that's what's going on how does that argue with your whole concept that God built the world in six days and the world is only six thousand years old let me tell you something the world is not six thousand years old the world's a lot older than that we're not, we, may, we may get into some of that stuff. But what you have to understand is they argue with us and they walk out laughing. We walk out our, with our heads hanging low or we hold our heads up high and we say, well, I was a martyr for God today. Folks, let me teach you some apologetics very quickly. In a generation of skeptical, humanistical philosophers, you better know what you believe. C.S. Lewis made this statement, a great statement. If you can not explain a simple truth, chances are that you do not understand it yourself. I'm running out of time, and I'm only about a quarter into my message this morning. This is going to go deep. Is it okay if we go deep? What do you mean? Here's how you must approach a philosophy. What is philosophy? Let me give you the definition of philosophy. The love of wisdom or knowledge, a study of the process, governing thought, conduct, and ultimate reality. Philosophy is out there. We must become Christian apologetics. What do you mean? Listen closely. Christian apologists, there's three levels of philosophy. And this is how they approach it. And you would know this, Jill, better than anybody. Because I think that even your degree, and let me get this out of y'all's way since you're the ones in class today, that, that, uh, that you will tell. A philosopher approaches everything. Everything from a logical point of view. Deductions are made from the facts. It appeals to reason. Then we have reason underneath that. 
reason, imagination. This is usually the controlled by emotions or examples, a story. This is how they approach things. Logically, it's this way, and then we have a story to prove it down here, and we're going to approach it the same way as Christians. And then prescription means conclusion or deduction or decision, how I apply it to my own life. This is one of the examples of how philosophy works. Believe it or not, we can do this as Christians the same way. We can learn from them. What do you mean? Level one basically states why we one believes what he believes. It's the facts. Level two indicates why one lives what he lives. It's reason. Level three reveals why one legislates for others the way he does. Understand something. If I come to this conclusion logically and I have reasoned it out in my mind because I can prove it by example, then prescription means I'm going to have to apply this to my children's lives. Welcome to philosophy. 101. Did I miss anything? See, what you've got to understand is it basically means state it, indicate it, reveal it. Same way as Christians, if you're going to be apologetics, if you're going to argue what you believe. Don't just walk in and say, well, this is what God's word says. Walk in first with logical answers. Is abortion right? I'm going to teach you this. Now, let me tell you with the facts about abortion, what it does to women's minds. Let me tell you about the fact about abortion, what it does to a young lady. When last night a 13-year-old girl's mom came up to me and said, can I have all of your wife's teaching? I can't afford them. My daughter's pregnant, and I don't know what to do. And I walked down on the table and gave her everything that Karen has ever produced on purity and what it just means to be special. And I looked at her and I said, and your daughter is beautiful, and your daughter is amazing, and your daughter is not a mistake, and neither is that child. And there's no such thing as illegitimate children, just illegitimate parents. And what you... Is anybody with me so far? Thirteen, pastor. She just has uh, 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 recently allowed her her emotions and hormones have been only rolling for about three or four years. Pastor, she's going to, and I can logically tell you, we don't want a 13-year-old pregnant because it's going to harm her body down through the process. I can logically tell you that 13-year-old girl has no ability to raise that child. But part of secular humanism and part of existentialism is make love, not war. Do whatever you want. There's no consequence. Let me tell you, that 13-year-old girl is having consequences. Reason. Here's my reason. I can tell her stories. I can give her a personal one. My mom was pregnant at 15. And for years... Now she has her doctorate now, earned doctorate, brilliant. But it put her whole life on hold for years. My prescription? Don't do it. There you go. Pastor, you're a little bit intense. How does a Christian argue philosophy? The term must be the terms must be unambiguous. What do you mean? Clearly define what you believe. Don't even get into an argument if you're going to make God look stupid. The reasoning and emotions must be sincere. Don't go crazy. Don't lose it. Produce facts and reasoning. The life illustration must come and must be alive in you. The premise must be true. You know how many people are stupid out there when it comes to the word of God? Give a man a fish, feed him for a day. Teach him to fish, feed him for a lifetime. That's not in the Bible. It's a great statement. I'm going to do that next Sunday. I'm going to tell you all the stupid statements that are out there. Pastor Greg's been helping me hunt them down. All the things that people say, well, that's what the Bible says. The big man upstairs. No, it doesn't, you idiot. I'm sorry. I feel like Glenn Beck. Let me move on. I've been watching him too much. The premise must be true. The argument has to be logical. Go past your emotions. And trust that God's spirit is communicating on your behalf. God will speak for you. He'll tell you things. He'll blow your mind. And in your closure when you're talking philosophy, have a prepared point of conclusion and decision. Let me talk about this. Let me get quickly into this. The apologetics of an evolving life. What do you mean? We are evolving. I'm not the same idiot that Karen married. I don't just disappear and go play basketball for four hours and say, hey, what have you been doing? 
Then she goes, <laughs> I've been figuring out ways to kill you. We first got married. If we got discouraged or tired, we'd just go get another credit card. Let's go shopping. It looked like a family portfolio of pictures when we go. Look at all of our credit cards. Then one day we had plastic surgery at our house. We're not the same couple that got married. She's better looking. I'm receding. <laughs> See, anyway, that's. Don't, don't, don't say nothing to me about that later either, Dave Knight. Now watch. What does it say? The Bible says, think it through. Be clear. On February 12th, 200 years ago, in 1809, two men were born on the same day. Two men shaped history. One was named Charles Darwin. The other was named Abraham Lincoln. They shared the same birth date, the same day they were born. But their legacies are totally different. One man helped the slaves uh, to, to release slaves and another has enslaved generations. Abraham Lincoln would say this. I do not think I could myself be brought to support a man for office whom I knew to be an open enemy and scoffer of religion. He said that on July 31st, 1846. He said all the good, the Savior, on September 4th, or excuse me, September 7th, 1864, when speaking a reply to the loyal colored people of Baltimore upon presentation of a Bible from their Christian society. He said, all the good Savior gave to the world was communicated through his, this book. But for it, we could know, we could, for without it, we could not know right or wrong. All things most desirable for men's welfare here and hereafter are to be found and betrayed in this book. That's what Lincoln said. Let me tell you about a guy named Charles Darwin. And his transmutation of species is considered deep thinking and irrefutable. I'm going to argue evolution today darwin here's some quotes from him the other guy that was born on the same day 200 years ago and by the way they've been doing galas uh for his 150th year presentation he was 50 years old galas all over america and balls on darwinism darwin's quote was a scientific man ought to have no wishes no affections a mere heart of stone that was his Darwin would make this statement, man is descended from a hairy-tailed quadruped, probably abnormal in its habits, meaning we came from apes. For 150 years, his theories of evolution have, and Darwinism have been pushed and shoved down the throats of second graders in America because creationists, we will not stand up and we will not say anything. Sir Fred Hale, who's a professor of astronomy at Cambridge, made this, stand, made this statement. I love it. The chance that life forms might have emerged through the Darwinian theory. This is a professor said this at Cambridge. It's comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard could assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Did you get that? If you didn't, listen on the podcast. Intelligent design versus the power of natural selection or evolution. Intelligent design. What do you mean? Evolution. Let me tell you the, the, what evolution means. In biology, the idea that life on earth originated from inanimate matter and proceeded to change over time into the diversity of plants and animals by evidence of fossils. In other words, you started as a tree. It's a tree theory. Darwinism, what does that mean? The theory proposed by Charles Darwin that species gradually evolve into new species by natural selection. Richard Dawkins, who's very well known, who has argued with Rick and Bubba, said this. Theory of evolution by natural selection is the only theory that actually works. That is a lie. Intelligent design. What is intelligent design? It's the scientific hypothesis that irreducibly comple uh, uh, complexity observed in every level of life cannot be explained by neo-Darwinian theory. Instead, it's best explained by the agency of an intelligent designer. This is what has happened, though, in America. We don't talk about the word creation any, any, anymore. We talk about intelligent design. Why? Because it sounds smarter and because scientists are now falling back on it. But we actually go one step further into something called creationism. How many of you are with me so far? Bring creation. A scientific theory that God was directly involved in creating the universe and all the various kinds of plants and animals, including mankind, as created in God's image. Are you still with me so far? 
What is our argument against Darwinism? What can we say? How can we walk up and logically look at a scientist or a teacher and say, this is wrong? Bring those up for me. What are the four arguments? The four arguments, I'll give them to you very quickly. It is this. DNA has caused the idea of us coming from a tree or common ancestors to be obsolete. It may be in your booklet that we passed out. Not sure if we put it in there or not. In other words, since DNA has come forth, since we now can look at someone's helic DNA, that winding staircase of your body that nobody else has, it is proven there is no way possible because other plants do not, plants rather, do not have helic DNA. So, over the last 10 years, while DNA has helped convict molesters and offenders, it has also helped defeat Darwinianism. Because it's proven it can't happen. The evolutionists refused this, the, the introduction of offsetting ideas or arguments. That's number two. When Darwin himself made the statement, his opening argument, we must always allow other opinions to come forth. But don't you dare nowadays actually look at somebody and say it's false because they will kill you. When Charles Darwin himself said, hey, it can't be that way. He said it must never cease debate. Number three, scientists are realizing after 150 years, survival of the fittest, which is the whole concept of, of natural selection, survival of the fittest, but not the arrival of the fittest. In other words, if, it, if Darwin was right over 150 years, some of us should have gotten smarter. We should have gotten taller. If that was the case, I would be able to slam dunk a basketball. Now follow me. The change has not happened. Biochemistry, number four, and cell chemistry is proving Darwin wrong. What is our best argument? That's logic. I've given you reason. The reason for the fact that I'll go to the zoo and I sit there and I look at the Mr. Ape and, and, I, and I see the stuff that he does and I go, well, that's not me. I may act like him during a ball game, but I'm not him. Reason. Prescription. Genesis 1, verse 27. What does it tell me in Genesis 1, verse 27? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Are you still with me so far? Let me tell you about really quickly the smart philosopher named Paul, and I'll get ready to close. Because I want you to get this. Acts 17, verse 16. Turn there if you haven't turned there yet. The Bible says, while Paul, I'm going to read it to you, and I want to get into this, and I'm sorry, I should have told you to turn there a few minutes ago. See, what you have to understand is, the Bible says that Paul, by the way, who was absolutely brilliant, here's Darwin, he wasn't. Paul is on place, goes to a place called Mars Hill. What is Mars Hill? Mars Hill is the deepest thinking place that you could go. It's in Greece, and it was where the brilliant minds of the day sat around and discussed things. We would call them beatniks today. Or we call it a teacher's lounge. This is where it happens, though. Paul did not... I love God's word because it doesn't miss anything. I'm about to show you America real quick. Can I do this real quick? I'm going to show you America. Acts 17, verse 16 is where we'll start. The smart philosopher Christian named Paul is his name. He was a smart philosopher. Christian. Don't leave that word out. Acts 17, verse 16 says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. When's the last time you got moved emotionally by the stuff you see in the city? If you can drive by and never see anything with your little blinders on, you need to go crawl into your prayer closet and ask God to awaken your spirit. That's why we started the summit. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Paul would go and talk to the fellow Jews, Christians, or rather just Jews, and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as the marketplace Day by day with those who happen to be there. What do you mean? <laughs> Paul preached a famous message in the presence of philosophers at a place in Athens called Mars Hill. Today, today there's actually a plaque there 
uh, uh, that that where he would go in and and when he went in and, found, and it actually has a plaque at the bottom of the hill at Mars Hill talking about the great sermon preached by the Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, the famous sermon. So he would go and he would spend time with the Jews. And then all of a sudden, there were two groups of people sitting in the marketplace. The Bible talks about these two groups of people, and I'll read about them in just a second. But let me tell you, the first group, they were called the Stoics. What are the Stoics? They're the type of people that say, just endure life. One, In fact, this group actually called him a, a babbler. And uh, they were pantheistic in nature. Uh, God is everything. Everything is God. Do you not see him? I feel God right here. Everything. God's all around me. God's in the tree. Uh, don't eat a fish because that's God. It, it's modern day environmentalist. Pantheistic is the whole concept. Everything is achieved through education and discipline. There's no such thing as God. Then the second group he talked to that day was a group called the Epicureans. And they were named after their philosopher Epicurus who lived in 341 to 270 B.C. And he founded a group called the Epicureans in 307 B.C. And Epicureans was an atomic materialist. What do you mean? Following the steps of Democritus. What does that mean? It's all about materialism. Basically, get what you can before you die. That's what it means, okay? They didn't believe in superstition or divine intervention. Basically, enjoy life, pursue life of, life of pressure, you may, uh, uh, pleasure. Excuse me. You make life what you make it. No divine intervention. You live, then you die. And they were basically after one's own pleasure. If God existed, he plays no role in our life. They were existentialists. What is an existentialist? I'm teaching you. Everybody's still with me, right? Are you, are you okay? I'm going deep. And we're going to go a lot deeper over the next couple of weeks because I'm tired of dumb Christians. What is existentialism? It's all about the human experience. They're atheists. There is no God. They also believe strongly in hedonism, which is seek after pleasure. Do what you want. You can be Nambla, North American men that, boy, that love boys and girls. I can be a grown man and go get an eight-year-old and touch it any way I want to. Can I give you the history of existentialism? Where it came from, it's in America. French philosopher Gabriel Marcel is the one that came up with the name existentialism in 1940. But there was two key philosophers, two people that produced types of thinking. And one was named Frederick Nietzsche and Soren Kierkegaard. Who are they? What do you mean? Here's Paul on Mars Hill preaching. Here's a guy named Frederick Nietzsche right here. And there's another guy right here that is standing. Here's Nietzsche. There's Kierkegaard. I want you to know they still teach in our classrooms today. These two guys. Can I tell you who they are real quickly? Are you still with me? i got to hurry because i got to take you through this really quick. All right. Kierkegaard wrote this. He was the modern father of existentialism, which is, again means do whatever I want. It's the process of secular humanism. And it, it basically, uh, he's the father of the existentialist. And he said, basically, I exist for me. I am here. I make my history. I decide what is right and wrong. There is no moral truth. There's no moral absolutes. Kierkegaard wrote in 1835, the thing is to find a truth which is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and die. He said, I'm going to find my own thing. Kierkegaard and Nietzsche also considered the role of making free choices. They idealized individuals to invent their own, invent their own values. It's the mom and dad today that says, go do what you want, kid. You've got to make mistakes on your own. You've got to figure out stuff on your own. I am so out of time. This is crazy. They believed in postmodernism. I got to get into that really quickly. They, they, it's the anti-worldview. It's the uh, characterized by skepticism. There's no absolute truth. Um, uh, postmodernists also believe that when it comes to finances, that you should always have intervention. It's kind of what we're seeing in America right now. And Christians believe in in uh, 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 stewardship. But I, I got to get into that a little bit more. Are you still with me? What is postmodernism? The anti Worldview characterized by skepticism of absolute truth and morality. Basically, I decide what truth and morals are for me. Thus, it becomes fact. I'm a free thinker. You don't believe in that? Oh, not us, really. Let me give you some statistics that Josh McDowell, my friend, put down in a book. He's brilliant, by the way. He was an atheist that became Christian. Wrote over 70 books. He said this, 7 out of 10 teens say there's no absolute truth, moral truth. Eight out of ten claim that all the truth is relative to the individual and his or her circumstances. Eighty-one percent of this generation of teenagers say that, that truth 
means different things to different people. No one can be absolutely positive that they know the truth. What else did Nietzsche push in Kierkegaard? Nihilism, the belief that life has no ultimate meaning. Secular humanism, a humanistic philosophy that upholds reasons, ethics, and justice. I already went through that with you. It's a concept. They don't believe socially there should not be non-traditional families. Um, there should, I mean, that there should be non-traditional families that, that you don't need the father and, and, and you don't need any of that kinds of stuff. And then we had the strands of psychology that they also pushed. Are you still with me? And Paul stands up and ministers, and I'll close with this. Pastor Eric, I don't know if you can get back there, but I'm out of time. So come on up. In Acts chapter 17, verse 18, it says he's meeting with a group of Epicureans. That's the existentialists. And Stoic philosophers, that's the pantheists, that's the environmentalists. They begin to dispute with him. And some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And by the way, the Greeks did not believe in any kind of doctrine of resurrection because they believed that the body was a cage, it was a prison. Your ultimate goal was to get away from your body. We kind of believe that too, don't we? Then they took him and they brought him to a place in the Areopagus. This was basically the civil law courtrooms. They invited him in. It wasn't a, he wasn't on trial or anything, but he goes and he stands before the deep thinkers, the ones that decide what is right and wrong. And he's standing there in front of the council of the Areopagus and he begins to defend what he believes. And Paul, the great apologist, is standing there. And by the way, let me just tell you this. I heard last week that Britain has now removed the Holocaust out of their books, their history books, because they don't want to offend Islam. So I guess we need to apologize to the 6 million Jews and the 20 million Russians and other Polish that lost their life. But let's remove it from our history books. By the way, I told you that secular humanism believes in making history. I don't even know if I told you. Line up with their circumstances. Let's remove it all. It's what Chad sent me in that text. Someday they will say once upon a time. So they were investigating this new doctrine. Paul's standing there teaching. They invited him in. Acts 17 verse 20 through 21. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, they said. And we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Here's a group of people that were the rock stars of the day. They were the movie stars. They were the brilliant minds and they're all sitting there talking and here comes Paul. He comes walking in and this crazy maniac who saw a light on a road starts preaching about a guy that was resurrected from the dead. And he approaches them with logic, reason, and prescription. He walks up to them and he begins to share and he begins to pour his heart out And he used his surroundings. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He compliments them. He didn't slam them. He said, you're religious. That was a compliment back then. So he used logic. Then he uses a little bit of reason. He used his surroundings to draw attention. He says in verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar there with the inscription to an unknown God. He takes reason, finds an altar sitting there. The altar that will make sacrifice to an unknown God. So cool, isn't it? Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. He is logic. He finds this altar sitting that says unknown God. And he says, here's God. Brilliant. Apologies. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord's of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He reasoned. He addressed the greatness of God. Where did I come from? That's what philosophy is all about. Why am I here? Where am I going? What's the meaning of life? Science always attempts to answer the first question and philosophy wrestles with the second, but only the Christian faith has a satisfaction satisfactory way of answering all three. Why am I here? To bring praise to God. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to build his kingdom. Where am I going to end up? In a place called heaven. Somebody give God a praise for that. Isn't that good? 
Verse 25, he says, he gives him, gives him a little bit more uh, reason. He said he's not served by human hands as if needing anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Then he gets really good right here because he looks at him and he says, God's the provider. They're always looking for provision. They wanted to hear that. He gave him a little prescription, gave him a little life there. He goes, let me just explain something to you because he himself gives all men life and breath. He was saying, Greeks, you've been searching for this. Athens, you've been searching for this. Oropagus, you've been searching for this. He's the one that gave it to you. Verse 26. From one man he made every nation that they should inhabit the whole earth. By the way, he was quoting a philosopher when he said that. (laughs) He used their own junk against them. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. The government of God. He was saying to them in verse 26 through 29. He is ruler. The gods of the Greeks were distant beings with no concern for them. They just were statues that they had sitting around. And those statues, believe it or not, never came to life. But after a while, you kind of go, is this real? But see, I've been invaded by God. I've had God bump into me before. I was preaching at Brownsville one day, and I just said something stupid. I said, be careful. God will bump into you. The next day, I'm standing there speaking at their college down there, and I've got my hands raised, and we're praying, and there's hundreds upon hundreds of people. True story, this happened to me. And all of a sudden, as I'm standing there, I'm praying, and all of a sudden, I feel this shove, and I turned around, and nobody was there. And God said, spoke to my heart. He said, son, you said I'd bump into you. I screamed like a little girl and ran and found a group to hang with. And uh, that really happened to me. I was standing in a hotel room in San Jose, California, getting ready to launch this church. And I was scared to death that I was about to lay everything down and lose everything. And I turned around and I saw an angel standing in the room. It's only happened to me twice in my life. And maybe it'll never happen to you. I don't know. Can't pray. I'm not going to write a book about it, though. But God spoke to me. I want you to know that we're here. See, what you got to understand is the God I serve will invade your life. It's not some stupid statue. In Acts 17, 27... He said, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. (laughs) He was saying, God created mankind from one man. So that all nations are made of the same stuff, the same blood. See, the groups were, excuse me, the Greeks, they were very racist. They believed they were the smartest and nobody else was. But they thought they were a special race. Paul basically looks at him and says, you ain't nothing. Flesh and blood and you're going to turn into dirt. And in verse 28, he quotes another poet, Credica, who had written, They fashioned a tomb for you, O holy and high one, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, but are you, but you are not dead. You live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. That is a poem from Credica of the Epimedes, a Greek philosopher. In 600 B.C., Paul quotes him. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. (laughs) Bam! We drop a bomb on you. I'm going to show you that I'm gold or silver or stone. I'm an an image made by man's design. I love that right there. And skill. Men have been trying to create us for years. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Prescription. He's saying, you guys got to change. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Logic. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the excuse me, again, messing up, Areopagus. In other words, one of the very council of the Areopagus. It'd be like Michael Moore getting saved. Turns around and says, "I'm going with you." I'm leaving these idiots. You just proved to me who Jesus was. And a number of others. He brought his message to a close and he brought grace and mercy. And he said, in him we move and have our being, but you must change now. And three things happened. Some laughed. Some said, I want to know more. 
and some followed. I'm done, I'm done, I'm sorry, I've gone so long. Folks, Paul just taught us. I wish I could have actually, I could have taught on that for days right there. So, Pastor, why, why are you bringing this our direction? State it. Indicate it. Reveal it. Logically. Reason. He died for me. Logically, he went through the whole Old Testament to build up to his name. Jesus loved me. This I know. (laughs) For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. Pat is weak, but he is strong. Shut your eyes across this room.